0: Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to be preaching this morning, and um, it's great to preach when when you what you're preaching about is something that you have walked, you've journeyed, uh, you know, you understand, and you can preach from a place of this is sort of where I've been. I've got the T-shirt, but often that's not the case. And so this morning I'm preaching from something where I'm really in the middle of the very thing that I feel God is saying to me, and that I'm speaking even to you this morning. So this. This message this morning is entitled, Don't Waste Your Fast. So, and I wanted to put it in bold letters so that uh, you can see that. Don't waste your fast. A couple of years ago, about um, two and a half years ago, Levi was about six months old. um, One night, we were about to go to bed, and as Roxy and I were about to go to bed, Levi just starts to murmur in his room, starts to cry, starts to scream. We take him, pick him up, and he just... He just gets worse and worse and worse. We don't know what's going on. He's writhing. He's screaming. He's crying. After about two hours of this, trying to... You can't give a child like that medicine. He's six months old, and, and we're fighting, and we're writhing, and it's just... we. I phone my dad. I say to him, come over to our house. Um, this is 12 o'clock at night now. I say, come over to our house. You've got to stay here with Leah. We're we going to hospital with this boy. We have no idea what's going on. Dad comes over, and we head to False Bay, and we go to False Bay, and as we go in there... Um, Thankfully, because he's little and they can see that he's in, he's in considerable pain or discomfort or something's going on, it w- wasn't long and we get to see the doctor the, or the nurse first and then the doctor in the um, ICU. And we were probably at False Bay for another two hours with no real conclusive idea of what is going on. And, and eventually he started to calm down to the point, or at least I think it was because he was exhausted. He was physically exhausted and he just started to calm down and... Um, the doctor, young doctor, just sort of said, well, you know, what more can we do? And they just dis- discharged us or just dis- discharged him, and we went home. And that evening, that whole night was still sort of on and off, on and off, really, really a battle. The next day, he was fine. Nothing wrong with him. A um, little bit tired, but fine. Yeah, we were tired. We were very tired, Roxy especially. So come the next evening, 10 o'clock, we go to bed and it starts again. And so immediately we're like, wait a minute, something's going on here. And we begin to pray, and we begin to just worship and pray, and God just begins to lead us in a time of confession. Now at that time in our lives, we were in the midst of a massive spiritual battle, and if you've ever been in these spiritual battles, you'll find that what the enemy does so well is he makes um, someone become your enemy. And then they, they set themselves up as your enemy, and then you think they are your enemy. And then you fight with them. And that's how the enemy works. And so we were in this sort of a battle. And we just began to confess anger, unforgiveness, hurt, fear that was around people in our lives and the battle that was happening around our lives. And we were worshiping. We were just confessing and praying. And Levi just began to just go sort of limp and just fall asleep in Roxy's arms. We carried on praying and worshiping and eventually put him in his bed, and he, and he went to sleep. And that was it that was the end of that but one of the things that it showed us again and sometimes god needs to really show you something is that what is happening in the natural is often a picture of what is happening in the supernatural it's often a barometer and children are especially good at this children are incredible barometers of the spiritual realm because they don't filter like we do if I'm in church and I'm feeling and I'm feeling like this, I just put on a mask and I just pretend and I just go along with it and I just leave and I'm like, I'm angry with Sheldon and I'm angry with... And I won't say anything because I put on a mask and I pretend. But children are not like that. Children show it. What they feel, they show. So That was one lesson. It's just a, a useful lesson to learn. But I want to turn it the other way around because I believe there's a real um, spiritual principle in this, is that just as we can sometimes see in the... In the physical realm, things that are happening in the spiritual. So there's a manifestation in the physical that demonstrates something that's happening in the spiritual realm around us. In the same way, we can sometimes, led in obedience by God, do purely physical things, but they have a profound impact on the spiritual realm. And that is what fasting is like. So fasting in its essence is not a spiritual thing. Who of you have ever fasted and you thought, wow, I'm going to be just so in tune with God when I'm fasting. I'm going to just be praying and worshiping and I'm going to just have the best time with the Lord. And, And actually how you feel when you're fasting, you feel miserable, you feel hungry. I get terrible headaches. You feel horrible. But what you're doing in the natural has having a profound impact in the spiritual realm. A profound impact because God has ordained it. That's the only way I can explain that because god has ordained it that way so i want to say to you don't waste your fast because god wants to do something in our own lives as individuals in our families sheldon's been speaking a lot about prodigals people friends family members who are far off who god wants to bring near again who god wants to call out but god wants to use me and you in, in the Gospel of Luke, and I was going to actually read that, but I'm not going to read that verse, because just for the sake of time. Because I think, how, how, how much time do we have? Okay. Hour? Oh, sure. Okay. Well then, I'll add a few extra scriptures. Thank you. <laughs> so let's let's read Luke then. Oh, it's on, on. on. Here we go. Let's read the Gospel of Luke. So Luke, he um, records Jesus' prayer that he teaches the disciples, but he adds this bit that isn't added, for example, in Matthew's Gospel. And Luke says... Um, or Jesus said in these words, Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing set be- to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me, the door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and to the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be open. So Jesus is teaching about prayer and he teaches this incredible principle about prayer, which seems so contrary to us to a lot of the gospel that we have heard. So a lot of the gospel we have heard has said to us that God will give you everything just because he loves you. That's not true. That's not true. The friend does not open the door because it's his friend. He opens the door because he's persistent. He is persistent. And this is why. It's not because God doesn't love us. He loves us dearly. But God only responds to faith. It's the only thing God responds to. And faith is shown most often in persistence and endurance with the Lord. In remaining with the Lord. In persisting, in pressing in, in enduring with God. And so when when a young child eats... They can't eat. They're a baby. The, you know, When you start feeding your children, obviously it's first milk. And then when they start eating solid food, you're there with a little spoon and you're shoving in the you know, mashed up veggies and things. And then when they get a little bit older, they start to feed themselves. But that's a nightmare. You know, It's just food everywhere. Most of it doesn't go. And you're trying to help them. You're trying to sort of guide them and you, you kind of help them get the food in their mouth. As they get older, they get a little bit better. Hopefully, by the time they're teenagers, they can feed themselves. <laughs> uh, you would hope. It's a good taste of parenting if your children can't feed themselves when they're a teenager when you become an adult you have to put food on the table when you become an adult you have to put food on the table you can't just sit down at the table and say what's for supper <laughs> <laughs> doesn't <it> work <laughs> good good for you kathleen just tell him straight none of this chauvinistic nonsense when you're an adult, you have to put food on the table. If we are going to grow into maturity in our faith with God, God is not going to be moved to do something simply because He loves you. He's going to be moved by your movement towards Him. You have to move. You've got to make an effort to say, Lord, I want what you have. And it's also not just about wanting what God has, has but it's coming to a point where you realize that God is the only source for what you need. There's no other place that you can find what it is that you need. So I want us to look um, very briefly at the story of Jacob. And um, thank you for that word this morning, Steve, because um, that word was about just speaking from my heart. And and this story of Jacob has just been a story that God has just had me sort of under his thumb with this. Um, Just looking at my own life, looking at my own heart, looking at my own mindset and, and the way that I live. And so I want to look at the story of Jacob, and the story of Jacob is really a picture of God maturing someone whom he wants to use for his purposes. Jacob, is a, as a young man, is, is got a lot of talent, a lot of promise, but he's got a lot of flaws. And actually he grows up, and we're going to look at um, Genesis chapter 32, so you can turn there, but I'm, I'm going to first give you some background. So in Genesis chapter 32, we're going to read one, just one portion of Jacob's life in the process of his maturing. But I want to just give you some background to the story. And I want to encourage you, um, you know, we're reading through Matthew, but we're not, you know, we haven't given you massive amounts of reading. Go read the story of Jacob. Go and read his story. The first thing that you notice about this family as, as you see this picture is that this is actually quite a dysfunctional family. You know, we often read Scripture, and it's something that I always teach people when we read Scripture. is Scripture, yes, it's the Word of God, but it contains the Word of God. So not everything you read in Scripture is describing how God wanted it to be. That, and people make a lot of mistakes in interpreting Scripture when they read the story and think, oh, that's what God wanted. No, it's not. It's just God describing people doing stupid things. And, him, and then God having to intervene in the situation. And this is the story of jacob's family of of isaac and rebecca They're, they're these two boys they're twins that are born god has a plan with each of their life but god has chosen for his purposes and there's a very clear purpose on that that we don't have time to go into now but he has chosen to choose to use the younger to be the one through whom he will establish his people that's god's sovereign choice it doesn't mean god doesn't love esau it doesn't mean that god doesn't have a purpose with esau it just means god has chosen jacob for this purpose And, but from the very young age, these two boys are wrestling with each other. They are so different from one another. Esau is hairy and strong and he's a, he's a hunter and, and Jacob's a mama's boy who stays at home. But Jacob's also very deceptive, very deceptive. And he notices his brother's weaknesses and he pries on his brother's weakness. He he realizes that his brother is not someone who can say no to a meal. I think if Esau had done some fasting, he would have been a lot better off in the story. But so Esau is out, he's hunting, and he comes home, and he's really hungry, and Jacob had made a beautiful, wonderful pot of stew. And he's begging him for some stew. And Jacob says, okay, I'll give you stew, but sell me your birthright. Because Jacob knows there's a purpose on his life for God to use him in a special way. But Jacob thinks he needs to make it happen for himself. So he says, let me try and do this myself. Let me trick my brother. Let me use his weakness to bring about my power. And he brings this conflict into his family. And it gets worse because their parents are not actually any better. Isaac and Rebekah are not better in this. They they have their favorites. Rebekah likes Jacob. Isaac likes Esau. They pick their favorites. And Rebekah decides, I'm going to seal this thing. I'm going to seal this thing. I don't trust God is able to do for my son that I love so much, my favorite. I don't trust God. I'm going to try and do it myself. So they hatch this elaborate plan to trick Isaac, to trick their father, his father in one of his most vulnerable moments when he's about to bless his eldest son. And he's a blind man. And they hatch this, this hideous plan to trick Jacob's own father, Rebekah's husband. And so he steals the blessing away of the, of the eldest from his brother. And it causes this family to go in a complete tailspin, complete destruction. Relationships are torn apart. Jacob, Esau vows, he says, when my dad dies, I'm going to kill my brother. I will kill him. He's so angry with his parents. He's so angry. Esau's so angry with his father. He says, my father doesn't like the women of this region. He actually sends Jacob away to get a a wife from his mother's family. He says, My dad doesn't like these people because of their customs and their ways. I'm going to marry one of these women. He goes and marries a woman to spite his father. And it causes him pain, actually, in the end, and his family because of their religious practices. And so we see this family spiral down, and Jacob flees to um, his, his uncle Laban, goes there, and he meets his um, two wives that he eventually gets. He only really wants the one, but he gets the other as well. Two for one special <laughs> in the Bible um <laughs> He literally did buy one. He worked for his wife, and then he got the wrong one, and so he worked some more. Uh, got his two wives, Rachel and Leah, and he was in this in this family now, now in a different country. And even there, you see the dis- dysfunction of his family. I mean, his wives were so the jealousy that he had with his brother is now in his between his wives. He wanted Rachel, but he got um, Leah first. And she feels this pain of being married to a man who doesn't really want her. But God gives her children. So she has a one-up rivalry. I've one-up on my sister. So she has children. And now her sister is sad. Her sister, Rachel, who is her husband's beloved, she can't have children. So what does she do? She gives him her servant to have children with. And she has he has, he has children with her servant. And then when... Um, when Leah can no longer have children now she doesn't have her one up anymore she gives Jacob her servant says have children with my servant and this goes back and forth it gets so bad at one point that these women are pimping their husband out to one another for fruit this is how destructive how twisted this family relationship is I want you to see this because we read these stories and we just think, oh, it's Jacob and Esau and it's Isaac and that's, oh, it's wonderful. And everyone's just got this perfect life and living these perfect little families all sorted out. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible is depicting broken people, broken, broken people. And so this carries on and it's interesting. Eventually Rachel has a son and she bears a son and they call him Joseph. And it's at that point that That um, Isaac decides, sorry, Jacob decides. I'm going to get confused with the names. There's too many names. Jacob decides, I'm going back to my father's home. The wife of his choosing finally has a son, Joseph. And something settles for him. And he says, no, I'm going to go home. So it's also interesting to look at the context why he favored Joseph. You know, when you read the story about Joseph and his coat, you see why he favored him. He waited many years for this wife whom he chose to bear him a son. So all these dynamics play into the dynamics of family life and of the reality of the things that are happening in this family and Jacob's own struggles. But this whole time, Jacob has been living a lie. This whole time, Jacob has been living a lie. He's been living under the pretense of a blessing that was not his. God had a purpose with his life. God had a purpose to bless him and to use him, but he was living in another purpose, under a false pretense identity living a lie but now god begins to call him back and say you need to go back to your father's land and you need to go and do what i've called you to do you need to become the people that i've called you to become and so jacob begins the journey it's uh, there's a little bit long, more in the story we'll jump over that but he begins the journey eventually to to head home and that's where we get the story here in chapter 32 he is on his way home and uh, he sends men ahead of him and the men return with a message Your brother Esau is coming to meet you. Now he's too far along in the journey already. He's on his way there. Esau is coming with 400 men to come and kill Jacob. And Jacob, everything in Jacob's life just reaches a zero. Because now he's in the middle of this journey. He's got women and children with him. He's got his animals with him. And here is his brother coming with 400 men to come and fulfill the promise he made. I will kill you, Jacob. And Jacob's left with nothing. He begins to pray. He begins to cry out to God. He says, Lord, I need you to rescue me. I need you to rescue me. Sometimes we need to get to that point in our life where we have no answer. To be able to cry out to God and say, Lord, I need your help. I need your deliverance. There's so often we have so many other places we look for our deliverance. So many other places we turn to to find answers in our life. Jacob got to a point in his life where there was absolutely nothing. He was in the desert. He was with his young children and his wives and his animals. And his death is facing him. And so after he prayed, he begins to send gifts off to Esau. Send him gifts of animals just to try and appease him. And he sends whole hordes of of animals off ahead of him. And he tells his wives and children that night, go over the river, stay on the other side of the river so that I'm alone. So that if if Esau finds me, he'll hopefully just deal with me here. And so that night, Jacob's alone. Jacob's alone on his own. And he's facing potentially his death. And in that night, someone appears to him. So let's read from Genesis 32. So it said, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so that jo- the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he was wrestling with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, what? Your, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named that place Peniel, for he said, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now he rose up. Sorry, now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh. And I'm going to just read a little bit further that I haven't got there on the, on the screen. A little bit later on, um, next, uh, next chapter, chapter 33, Jacob lifts his eyes after all of this has happened. And he sees there's Esau coming with his 400 men. And he begins to bow down as Esau approaches. But Esau, in, chapter, in verse 4, it says, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And God reunited a family. God changed the course of that family's history. Jacob was on the run for a very long time from this problem of his brother, of him trying to make his own way in life, of him trying to con and weave and lie his way through life. And at some point, as much as he tried to run from it, at some point it caught up with him. It catches up with us. The realities of who we are. And I think this is where God has been stirring my heart. As I say, this is not a message I'm preaching that is um, something I can say. I've got the t-shirt. I've been there. I've done that. But it's something where I really feel this in my own life as God is saying, I want to deal with you. I need you to be real with me. I need you to be face to face with me. And I don't know another way, but I've I've found this to be the story for me. And you can say maybe it's a different story for you. But I've found there's no other way to really, really get face to face with God, to really get in the dirt with God than through prayer and fasting. There's another way. Jacob was literally wrestling with this man. And we are told from Scripture it was God with whom he was wrestling. In fact, Hosea chapter 12, we don't have time to look at it, gives us a definitive answer. This is God whom he's wrestling with. So if we look at that and we look at all of scripture and we see even the story before when Jacob saw the vision of the ladder, we put all those stories together. To me, it seems that Jacob is wrestling here with Jesus Christ. That's who he's wrestling with. He's coming face to face face with Christ. And he wrestles with him. The story says he wrestles with him all night that whole night he wrestles that whole night he wrestles we don't know if they said anything but they were in the dirt fighting with each other and he said i'm not letting this i'm not letting this one go he knew something about this man he's not he's not a normal person and i think in that moment god was testing jacob jesus was testing jacob because jesus had a plan with his life he was testing him to see are you going to endure with me? Are you going comp- to fight with me until you get your answer? Because his wives and his sons had brought many other idols with them. They were still with them in the camp. He could have gotten up from there and said, this isn't working. This guy isn't doing it for me. Let me find someone else who will give me an answer. Let me go to some of the other gods that I've known from the previous countries we've been. But he remained there and he wrestled with him. And I want to say to you this, and it's actually something Tony said to us at the preacher's meeting this week. that's just stood out to me and it's going to come out, I think, very strongly when we do this series in James. That your faith isn't too small. Your faith isn't, you don't need more faith. You don't need more faith. The faith you have is enough. It's all the stuff in your life that is clouding your faith, that is distracting you from your faith. That is confusing your mind it's all that stuff that is stopping your faith from working god had to bring jacob to this point where there was nothing else and when he he had nothing else and he was faced with god alone he said you know what unless god blesses me then what he got to a point in his life where he said unless god then nothing that's an equation that we need to get to for spiritual maturity unless god then nothing unless god there's no other answer but when he got to that point the little bit of faith that jacob had kicked in and he said i'm not letting go of you until you bless me there is nothing else i have no other answer those gods those idols lying in in the camp with my sons and my wives they false gods i know they're false i know they're false but god you can do it and god is calling back and i believe that something of what god is saying is he's calling back even the prodigals Like Sheldon was saying, he's calling back people. There are many, many people in this community, in this country who know who God is. They have that seed of faith. But there's so much junk in their lives that the enemy is clouding them with. And he's going to call them back. But he's going to begin with us. He's going to begin with us. He he asked Jacob for his name. I think that's so interesting in this wrestle. He says, what's your name? Because Jacob's been living under a false name. He, He went and stole a blessing that belonged to Esau. He's been living under a false pretense. He's been living a lie in his life. There's been things in his life that have not honored God and he's been hiding them. God is saying to him, you need to come before me and you need to admit before me who you really are. He's calling each one of us. Saying if you want to be serious with God, if you don't want to waste your fast, you need to be serious with God and you need to admit to God who you really are. That's the starting point. You need to get face-to-face with God and say, Lord, this is who I am. This is the reality. I can't lie about it. I can't hide it. You can see it all. This is who I am. Because God wants to deal with that. And in that moment, as he's honest before God, as he stops running and stops faking, a lot of us say, we, you know, you fake it till you make it. It doesn't work that way with God. It doesn't work that way. He says, stop faking, stop running, stop hiding. Just be who you are. Just admit it and stand before me. And in that moment, God himself changes Isaac's, I mean, Jacob's identity. He says, from now on, you will be called Israel, which means to strive with God. And actually, if you look at that name and the composition of that name, it's a very interesting name because in a way, it actually means that God prevails, Because even though Jacob strove with God and prevailed against God because he was persistent, he said, God, I will not let you go until you have blessed me. Actually, in all of that, God prevailed. Because that's what God wanted to bring out of Jacob. That's what God wanted to bring out of the depths of him. It's the very thing that the enemy comes to squash in us. It's the very thing that the enemy attacked in us right in the Garden of Eden. When he says to Adam and Eve, you don't really need God, you need something else. And our whole lives we live thinking i need god plus or i sometimes need god but i really need this but then god comes and says actually when you can come to the point where you realize the only thing you need is god then god wins then you win but god's actually won he's actually produced in you the very thing he desires for your life and he transforms jacob he transforms his identity and he becomes the father of of a nation through whom the whole world will be blessed i just think if it if it's jesus looking at him and i really believe it was jesus wrestling with him i really believe from all of scripture we can have a discussion about this but i really believe this as jesus was looking at jacob eyeball to eyeball on the ground in the dust he was saying is this the man is are you going to be the man through whom i'm going to fulfill my promise to change the whole world i want to see something in you I want to see a desperation in you that says i'm not satisfied with the status quo i'm not satisfied with what i see around me i want to see something different is that what you want i'm asking you are you happy with the way south africa is today are you happy with what we see in our communities today is that what you want for your children for their children's children God is saying, I'm looking for people who are saying, enough is enough. Enough is enough. And are willing to stand up and say, I'm not letting go of God until he makes a change. I'm not willing to let go. Because I want to ask you, what other answer do you have? I think Cyril Ramaphosa is an amazing man. I really do. Bless him. Pray for him. But he's not the answer. You can't change this nation. God can use him. God can use politicians, but they're not the answer. God is looking for a people who are saying, I'm not going to stand for mediocre for my family. What is it that you've settled for for your family? What is it that you've seen in generations of your family past and you've just settled and accepted that your family is going to be like that? God is waiting for people who are going to stand up and say, it's not going to be like that in my family. You've got to take a stand. You've got to make a decision god is saying you need to consecrate yourself you need to strip away all the stuff you know why you need to strip that stuff away really why because all it does is it stops you from having faith it stops you from really being able to hold on to god that's what the sin does that's what all that stuff does it it becomes an avenue in which the enemy can bring fear into your life and if he's got fear in you he's got a gate man on your life you can't do anything and fear comes through sin So God says, I want to strip that stuff away. So there's no fear in you. There's no fear, but just faith, just to trust the Lord, just to walk with the Lord. And when Jesus saw that in Jacob, I believe Jesus said, this is it. It's, this is it. I can work with this man and with his family. And I'm going to bring about a plan through his life that is going to change the whole world. And every single one of us is sitting here today because of what God did through Jacob. So God blessed Jacob, but God really blessed the world. And so I want to say to you, don't waste your fast. Because I really believe God wants to bless you. And, and it's good to fast about things. We, we need things. There's things that we might pray about and say, Lord, I need this. I need... That's great. It's fine. There's not, nothing wrong with that. But don't waste your fast on that. God wants to change you so that you can change the nation. That's what you're fasting about. That's what you're praying about. God wants to stir something up in you. We were singing that song about the fire. Well, God wants to stir up a fire in us for him that's going to change people around us and all he's waiting for is someone to say here am i lord here am i lord here am i just as i am this is who i am all my junk all the stuff all the past all my family history he's not scared of any of that he's not scared of your dysfunction of your family look at their lives he's not scared of that bring it before him open yourself up to him Because I believe God wants to do something in our in our families, in our marriages, in our communities. You shouldn't have said that. See now. (laughs) A while ago, God said to us through a prophetic word he gave this word to a lady and she was carrying this around with her for about a month and then um in a prayer prophetic prayer time this lady met roxy and god said to her this is the word for this lady and the word was that god has called our family to be a black diamond to stand out to not be like the rest and i And I take that as a word that God has spoken over our family. And we're striving, we're fighting for that word in faith. We're contending for that word. But I want to say to you, it's a word for every one of you. It's a word for every single one. If you have faith for that word, God says it's yours. It's yours. You can be a black diamond. You can be something that people say, what is this? I've never seen this before. You can be that your life, your family, your marriage will speak in your community. It'll be like the loudest trumpet that has ever been heard. People will see Christ in and through you. God wants to use us. He wants to bless us. He wants to change our identity so that we can change this world. And so I want to share with you a little video clip. Um, I, I just knew from the moment I was going to preach that I had to share this clip. I've watched this Um I don't know how many times, it's part of a longer sermon, but I've just edited out the sermon and I'm just giving you the testimony. And this always touches my heart. It's No matter how many times I watch this, this touches my heart because I think there's an anointing on this man and on this testimony. Um, it's a man by the name of Jim Simbala. Some of you might have heard of him from the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Any of you have heard of Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir? Amazing ministry. This is the man who planted that church. Well, they didn't plant it. They were sent to this little church. In downtown New York in the 1970s, he was an ex-basketball player. This church was 40 people. It was depressing. It was horrible. It was terrible. In the 1970s and 80s, New York was not a place you want to be. Go and read a bit of the history about New York. It was a horrible place. Drugs, alcohol, abuse of every kind, crime. There was massive unemployment in the city of New York. A lot of businesses, massive industries had closed. And God sent him and his little family into this Center of New York, in Brooklyn to take over this tiny church, and they decided from the moment they took over that church they said we 're going to make prayer the center of everything we do in the church. And so they choose their night prayer meeting, drove everything that they did, and they became, became incredibly successful i don 't mean in worldly sense, I mean in kingdom. They saw many, many people 's lives rescued out of drug addiction, out of prostitution, out of whatever you want to name, they saw it happen. and they built an incredible church. But in the midst of that, they went through a massive personal struggle. And he shares in this testimony how prayer is what changed their lives. And I want you to hear his word and I want you to take his word for yourself. God wants to speak to us through this. Thanks.
1: But in closing, let me just tell you the last, some of the last lessons I've learned about this wonderful truth. Because I'm not trying to preach down to anyone. I'm preaching to myself. As I was talking to you about eight or nine years ago, my daughter who is here today, she got away from us. She got away from not only us, she got away from God, she got away from our house. And my wife and I went through a -a two-and-a-half-year-long nightmare that I don't want to go into, but I promised God... As I was getting at the end of it, that it, as he brought me through it, that wherever I got a chance, I promised God no matter how hard it would be, as he's my witness today, no matter how hard it would be, I would tell people what God does in answer to prayer. You know what the feeling is? Not to know where your daughter is. when that She grew up as a model child. I have two other children. Chrissy's now 25. I have a daughter 21 and a boy 18. But at that time, Chrissy was about 17, 18. And it, it was... I'm talking nightmare. I'm talking about getting in my car and leaving my house to go to the church in the inner city where where I'm going to face, you know, 10 new people who, visit, who are HIV positive uh, and a battered woman and no neat family units and everything discombobulated and I don't want to be the focus I'm supposed to be there, Carol and I to minister to them but I'm crying from the minute I leave my door to the church and saying God, my heart is broken, my nerves are shot I've screamed, begged, pleaded tried to use money reasoned, cried and she's getting worse she's not getting better and how am I going to minister? And we're starting other churches and renting Radio City Music Hall and starting new churches in, in the city and, and going to South America and Carol's writing songs and making albums. But nobody knows, and very few people know, that we're, we're hanging by a thread, my friend, by a thread. And all the times I drove and cried out to God coming in and saying, God, please just get me through these three meetings. We have 11, 3.30, and 7.30 services each, about two hours long or more. And I'm just saying, God, please just get me through another Sunday. And God would just lift me. And I would have the grace to get through and minister to people, even though inside I was so, so just shaking. And I learned that when you pray, God comes. I learned that when you have no logical way to stand, God somehow, when you pray, gives you fresh feet and a fresh foundation. We have a prayer band in our church. It's a more important ministry than the 240 Voice Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. There's a prayer band that not only prays through each service, about 20 of them pray through each service on Sunday while I'm preaching and ministering there in a room locked away praying, but now they pray for certain several years now, from 2 in the afternoon till 6 in the morning, There's in the church, there's people praying every seven days a week, two in the afternoon till six in the morning. Then if you have some need, you can just mail it to our church. Someone will pray for it three in the morning. It's an amazing thing how God honors that. Well, they began to pray for me. And as God is my witness, I would sense myself at night sometimes or shaving in the morning. I would feel God's grace just come underneath me and, 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 and begin to steady me and hold my emotions. And I hadn't even been thinking about God. And I would say, Lord, what is this that's just come into my life? Somebody's praying for you. Somebody's praying for you. These people would be praying for me. God bless them. Then my wife got ill, had to have a hysterectomy and the hormonal imbalance that she ended up with. My daughter's out of the house. The other two children, I'm doing the best I can. And now my wife is not talking just about leaving New York, which she wanted to, because the enemy had told her, fine, start your churches and influence people for Christ, but I'm going to have all your children. I've got one, and I'm coming for the other two. And my wife believed it and told me, You can leave with me or you can stay, but I'm leaving. Because he already has Chrissy, and I'm not losing my other two kids enough with this. We can't do this. The the atmosphere in the city New York is a miserable place to be. I'm not there because I like it. I'm there because God put me there. And, and, And then after the operation, she's talking about she doesn't feel any reason to live any longer. And and I mean, what do you do? Your wife is flipping out. Your daughters, you're preaching, you're doing all of these things. I'm just telling you, oh, how wonderful it is to know that at the throne of grace, no matter what's happening, God can lift you and hold you. What a wonderful God. One November, after about two years had passed, Chrissy was awake. God and I got totally alone in Florida. And God spoke to me and said, I know you've been praying for Chrissy. The impressions I got were basically this. I don't want to sound mystical or sensational. I'm just going to tell you from my heart. No more talking to Chrissy and no more talking to anyone else and no more money and no more screaming and no more crying. Drop it. Just tell me. Let's make a covenant. You just tell me and I'll take care of it. And I told my wife, I'm not gonna see my daughter until she's right. And that's my first child. My wife kept in touch with her. Months went by. Christmas, sad Christmas. Who wants presents when your daughter's away? On a February night in the prayer meeting, my house shall be called the house of prayer. We were all praying and calling on God and waiting on God. You know, nobody in charge, no choir, no speaker. Who needs it? You have Jesus. It's amazing how wonderful he is. And someone sent a note up to me, a woman, a young lady who hears, hears, who's sensitive to the Lord, and she sent a note up through an usher, and the note said, I feel deeply impressed that we should stop the prayer meeting and pray for your daughter. I looked at the note. People were praying all around me. I looked at the note and said, God, is this really you? I don't want to be the center of attraction. People have their own needs. But I felt impressed it was. I stopped the prayer meeting after a little while. And everybody gathered together in that room, in that church, and held hands, uh, over 1,000 people probably that night. And I call one of my associate pastors in the front and he began to pray. And all I can tell you, and I don't know what your theology is, and it really doesn't matter, I'm just gonna tell you what happened. You know where Paul that? Said, Paul said, I travail like a mother giving birth to Christ be formed on you? Well, I told the people, my daughter thinks up is down and down is up and she thinks light is dark and dark is light, and unless God visits her and intervenes, my daughter is out there. And and, and I'm gonna someone wants me to stop the meeting so you could pray. My associate is going to come, he's going to pray. And suddenly it turned into a labor room. You ever hear women when they're giving labor, having labor? It's not pleasant, but it has some great results. <laughs> and they began to pray. I was overwhelmed by it. I was, as God is my witness, I was overwhelmed by it. I mean, they began to pray as if they went to the throne of grace, like, and now, Satan, you will give up that girl. if you would just come, let's sing Pass Me Now, O Gentle Savior. And they prayed. I came home, my wife wasn't there that night, and over a cup of coffee at night, I told her, Carol, it's over. She said, what's over? I said, it's over. If there's a God in heaven, what I just experienced tonight, it is over, finito, it's over. Just about a day later, I was shaving and my wife burst into the bathroom and said, Chrissy's here. I said, Chrissy, I hadn't seen her in four months. Chrissy, and you better go down. I went down the steps and ended wiping off the shave cream, and in, the, in on the kitchen floor was my daughter on her knees. And then when I walked in the kitchen, she grabbed at my pants leg. She pulled it. She was weeping, and she said, Daddy... I've sinned against God. I've sinned against myself. I've sinned against you and mommy. Daddy, forgive me for being rebellious, etc. Daddy, Daddy, it's different. But Daddy, who is praying for me? Who was praying Tuesday night for me? What, Chrissy, what happened? And she drew up to me. She said, in the middle of the night, God woke me up. And he showed me that I was heading toward a chasm and it had, no, it had no body. But daddy, even as he showed me that and showed me how off I was, he put his arms around me and he showed me that he loved me and he had a plan for my life. And daddy, I, I made it right with God. And I could tell by her face she was my daughter again, the one I had raised. Very soon God opened the door and for the next four years she directed the music program at a Bible school. She married a man of God. They're both in the ministry today. And God reminded me once again, my house shall be called the house of prayer because when you call, I will answer. And the hard cases that some of you are facing, I want to tell you now, it won't come from another seminar. Seminars have their limit. All they can do is be an arrow that gets you to the throne of grace. But when you get there, watch out. Because God can do exceedingly beyond what we ask or think. I'm not being emotional. I'm not being simplistic. But we have too many technicians now invading the church that are into methodology. The answer is not in methodology. The answer is in the power of the Holy Spirit. The answer is in the grace of God. let just...
0: As we respond to that, let's just stand together. Let's just stand.